contract management is usually one on my first list of asks because those data analytics directly tie to revenue. You know, being able to mm. know where your risks are, when things need to be renegotiated, mm. who your signers are, and tracking all of those things, payment terms, mm. making sure the right stakeholders are weighing in, that compliance is seeing this piece, that the insurance team is weighted, whatever it is, is directly related to your revenue. Welcome to the Council Podcast. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I'm passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. Megan is the General Counsel and CHRO at Glowforge, the creator of the iconic at-home 3D laser printer. As part of the executive team at Glowforge, she leads the legal and HR people team functions and works with other senior leadership to scale the company during its current period of rapid growth. Prior to Glowforge, Megan garnered both law firm and in-house experience leading best-in-class legal teams and handling all legal matters, including commercial transactions, employment law matters, corporate immigration and litigation. In addition to her work at Glowforge, Megan is also on the board of Providence Hospice of Seattle Foundation and the founder of Diversity University an organization founded to support equity and inclusion in the workplace. Megan and I had not met before we connected to do this podcast interview, and I so appreciated her willingness to be open and and transparent and really authentic with me. She wasn't afraid to go all in and to, to really pull back the curtain and share some real practical insight into her success. So thank you, Megan. It was fantastic to meet. This episode of Council is brought to you by Markster. Markster provides dynamic trademark services to modern in-house legal teams, empowering them to de-risk, optimize, and more easily manage their trademark portfolios. Manual data entry and processes can increase the risk of mistakes, leading to missed deadlines and forgotten trademarks. The Markster platform pulls data about your trademarks directly from the source and uses automation to decrease the risk of mistakes and inconsistencies. Find out more at markster.com.au or reach out to Kate and the Markster team. Their contact details are in the show notes. I would also like to thank InCouncil for supporting this episode. InCouncil provides people and tech solutions for in-house legal teams. They provide you access to a high caliber panel of sole practitioners, which includes a lot of former in-house lawyers who can help you with ad hoc matters or ongoing support. They also specialize in helping GCs select, set up and integrate the best tools and technologies. Go to incouncil.com.au to find out more. If you aren't already subscribed to InCouncil Weekly, you are missing out. I always look forward to it landing in my inbox. It is a weekly email with bite-sized insights for in-house counsel and creative legal minds. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? 
really well. Thank you so much. And I want to kick right off and ask my every time question to get a sense of our guest. If you had a limitless credit card and you could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? Gosh, I'm torn. On one hand, I'm thinking limitless burritos would make me really happy. (laughs) But then on the other hand, like if there was a shop that was just a spa in general, so you could go every day and get a facial and a Mm. massage um, whenever you felt like it, then I think I'd go with that shop. I actually think we need to get a collaboration going with like, I I don't know if it's going to be Chick-fil-A or something (laughs) epic that has a spa and you can do both at the same time. I'm thinking big here. (laughs) I would pick that shop for sure if you could get both. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Thank you for answering that. Let's dive right into it. I'd, I'd love to hear essentially how you would describe what you do today to someone that's outside of the legal profession. You take it in a few different ways. So one, there's a difference between being in-house and being at a law firm. And so I work in-house, which means I only have one client. I'm an employee of a company and I don't bill hourly or by the minute increments. I am good. (laughs) I'm there as a professional um, to advise the company um, on all things legal and to be a a business strategist for my my company. Aside from in-house versus firm, I am the general counsel. And so I oversee the legal forum for the company and which is a little different probably than being an individual contributor. And so my job is really to work on the executive level with the CEO and the rest of the executive team to help guide the company forward mm-hmm. and to accomplish our business goals while still calling out you know, legal considerations, helping mitigate risk, and helping us get to those business goals in the best way we can together. And so I, I spend a lot of my time just advising, researching, and issue spotting, as well as problem solving and trying to orient our team to help facilitate business goals. I couldn't have said that any better, honestly. And and to say, when you say problem solving, that really, really resonates with me. I feel like, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you are in an early stage, hyper growth startup environment. And sometimes there's just a problem and they send it to legal and you just got to pick it up and look at it and go, okay, well, I guess I'll fix this because there's nobody else around. Is that kind of how, how some of your days pan out? That is every day, I feel like. Um, and especially <laughs> at a startup, I think there's a lot of education there because people at the company don't necessarily know what legal does. And so you very rarely get someone that calls you up and says, I have a, and then fill in the blank, very specifically poised legal question. It's more a, a word dump of an initiative they're trying to launch. And you're you know, sorting through that to issue spot and help them know how to best partner with you. Yeah, for sure. And you didn't start your legal life in-house, did you? No, I started at a firm. Okay, so let's go backwards a little bit. Let's let's turn back time and, and, and take you to that that kind of early, early stage, early career lawyer vibes in a firm. How was that experience for you? <laughs> Goodness, you're taking me way back and probably semi traumatizing to most new lawyers uh, doing, doing yes, the bar exam. Yes, that's right? a, that is <laughs> funny how that's a global kind of common experience. (laughs) Definitely. Coming out of law school, doing the bar exam, having no idea, knowing what you're doing, and then doing the first year associate thing at a firm, which is what I did. I went to a firm and the firm was defense side, labor and employment law firm. So there's litigation and, and the typical, you know, client advice work. And I did that right out of law school. 
But I knew pretty quickly that I really was interested in moving in-house. I liked the idea of being a business partner. I like the idea of more holistic advice. And so, for example, at a law firm, you may be told, spend X number of billable hours to answer Y question. And really the answer might be, well, is that the right question to be asking? And should we do more holistic training? And what policies need to be revamped? And why has this come up? But no one's paying you to do that analysis necessarily Mm -hmm. at a law firm. And I was really interested in more of the holistic approach and practical approach to the law. And so I I pretty quickly and early in my career moved in-house. I find that in Australia, there is a little bit of a, there's a bit of a rule. It's it's not even an unspoken rule. It's pretty vocal rule about, you know, you must work X number of years in private practice before you even think about going in-house. Is that, is that the same in the US as well? It is. And it certainly was far more that way. So when I decided I wanted to go in-house, it was, I graduated in 2009, which was also the height of a, a recession economically here. And so when I said I wanted to go in-house as a, at that time now, second year associate, people thought, gosh, what are you thinking? <laughs> There's no way mm. uh, you're lucky to have any job, let alone you're not going to get in-house unless you've worked 10 years at a law firm. Wow, 10 years. Uh, wow. That's what they said at the time. Now I think yeah. that has shifted quite a bit. And there are a lot more in-house departments that will look at, you know, second, third, fourth year associates and bring them in-house. Mm. But at the time, that's what they had told me. You know, you must go work for a top law firm for 10 years before you'd be considered. It wasn't a hard and fast rule. I think it was just what people said. But I was determined that that was not going to be the case. (laughs) So I went out and crafted my own path and it worked out for me. Not that I think everybody does that or could do that or even that it's advisable always, but, but that is what I did. Good on you. You're kind of rewriting the story for yourself and going, I don't know, that doesn't sound like it's going to be my story. So let's see if I can forge my own path. I (laughs) really, really love hearing stories of attorneys doing that because it's, uh, you know, it's a traditional profession that we work in. And these these rules are well, some of some think that they're kind of immutable and that this is the way it's always been done. And so that's the path. But yeah, I have a similar experience. And I I was told multiple times by multiple people that I would regret it. And I could always come back to private practice. And you know, it's been seven years, and it hasn't been a a thing I've wanted to do. (laughs) Tell me about the first in-house role that you had. Yeah, so it was at a Fortune 500 international uh, public company. Amazing. Um, oh my gosh. You don't muck around, girl. You got straight to the top. <laughs> went straight oh my there. Gosh. Straight there. Um, and I did employment law um, and I did the international employment law as well as some of the immigration work there. They were a, a global freight forwarder. And so I worked there for about six years. Amazing. I really kind of got my feet wet in all of the international and global and in-house world on the employment law side there. So you were specializing somewhat kind of yeah. In that in that employment space, yeah, okay, I, I love that because I think um, I think I feel like that's a trend at the moment actually for you know in house being certainly the generalist and the 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 Jack and Jill of all trades, but now as teams growing, are you finding that there is that? I mean, you you went straight there, but in this environment, are you finding that there is a specialization starting to emerge around those those subject matter specialization? I think it depends. And I think it depends on the path you're trying to go. So if you're going to go work at a very large company with a team of 150 attorneys, you will inevitably have to specialize that that's your route in. And I wouldn't actually think you had a strong chance to get in there if you were a generalist. So if, for example, you're working for Microsoft and they say the 
SaaS technology team is hiring five to seven year attorney to work on technology contracts. You're not going to compete well if you've done one year of that, one year of family law, one year of employment law, one year of real estate. Whereas if you're going to a small team and a startup, I think you have much more to bring to the table maybe if you're a generalist. Because at a startup, if you have a team of three, you're gonna inevitably need your team to do a little bit of everything. And maybe you have a specialty and then a few other more general things you can fill in doing. But yeah, I think it depends. I got in with a specialty and that was my background, but at some point in your career, I also think you have to make conscious choices, which was my next move. I think at my seventh year mark, I sat down and reassessed my career and said, all right, what are the options here? If I stay in employment law and immigration, what does that path look like? And where does it ultimately lead? And is that what I want to do? And you know, that path might lead to being an assistant general counsel or a a head of an employment team. Or do I want to do something else? And I decided I wanted to be a general counsel. I wanted to lead an entire legal team. And to do that, I really felt I needed to broaden my specialty and I needed to get some other big buckets under my belt in order to competently be a general counsel. And in-house, there's a handful of roles that are probably the most applicable, right? People do contracts, people do employment law, some, depending on your industry, you know, have real estate people, Mm. some have compliance people, some have data privacy people. You're not going to find a family law attorney or a criminal law attorney very often that's in-house. Oh, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Make you question what that company was doing. But there's big buckets, the big buckets that are the most likely to find an in-house capability. And so I thought gosh, I need to broaden. I need to get some commercial contracts and negotiation under my belt and some more general experience. And so kind of went back to the drawing board, which was what I did when I first got my in-house job. It all comes down to your network, really. And went back out there and put out feelers and said, I I need to make a change. I want to broaden my perspective and get more into a commercial transactional role without taking too many steps backwards in my career. And just through my network was introduced to a, a fantastic company. They said they have a posting for a commercial contracts lawyer. I said, well, I saw their posting, but I'm not qualified. They're looking for, you know, a five to seven year just commercial transactions lawyer. And I'm technically a zero year commercial transaction lawyer, but they made an introduction and I went to the interview and I remember that general counsel sitting across from me, looking at me and he leaned back in his chair and he said, all right, if you were me, what would you be worried about? And I said, maybe that I have no experience. (laughs) And he said, well, what would you say to me? And I apparently just spilled out of my mouth a bunch of magic, but I said, I've done a lot of hiring. I believe you can teach the right person anything. I believe there's some things you can't teach people though that are crucial for success. And I have those things such as I am a quick learner. I am a proactive and self-starter. I am responsible and reliable. I understand business. I work quickly and efficiently, but I have attention to detail. I have a strong communicator, whatever else I said. And I said, Mm -hmm. and you're going to have to teach me contracts. And apparently he bought that. So they hired me and taught me commercial transactions and they were a perfect industry. They're a large national uh, financial consulting firm, but because of that, their clients range from everything, right, to private entities, to schools, to governments, to cities. So you're negotiating every possible kind of contract and dealing with every possible kind of clause or compliance issue that shows up in these contracting situations. And so it was a great way to just jump in and broaden what I was doing. Wow. There's so many parts of your story there I just want to pull out. And when you talk about the power of your network, I, I just love to hear it because it's so it's so true. Do Did you work with recruiters? Is that a part of when you talk about your network or is it more like just who you know, people in the industry, that kind of thing? It's who you know. I did talk to some recruiters. What I found was, and I don't know if you find that there, but here a lot of recruiters are not as applicable or helpful if you're of a 
mid to more junior level attorney. Most companies don't engage those recruiting firms until you get to much more senior levels and they don't want to pay for that. And so not as useful if you're kind of a mid-level attorney. And so it was all about who I knew. And I started that work back when I first wanted to move in house. I spent eight months building that network, going to coffees and then refining my networking approach because I found in the beginning, I would basically ask someone to go to coffee. I'd pay for parking. I'd buy their coffee and then I'd listen to them talk about themselves for 45 minutes and then they'd wish me luck and go on their way. And I think, gosh, (laughs) I'm a little bit poorer and I'm never going to get that time back. And then I started kind of refining my networking to really, and I talk at law schools about this a lot, of being a targeted approach and making sure it's researched, making sure you're clear on the ask and what you want to get out of that, making sure that you're maintaining contacts and making sure that you are selling yourself in the right way and making sure that you are taking the responsibility of making sure the person you're meeting with is getting the information about you out of that meeting that you want them to and that you're leaving with what you originally went in wanting, whether that's another name, whether that's information, whether that's a connection. And as I started refining that approach, because I'm a nerd, I built an entire Excel spreadsheet (laughs) with all of my network contacts and who referred me to who and where they worked and all the details. And then I color coded them where green was super nice, really willing to talk to me, wanted to help. Yellow was like, it was a little hard to get them to meet with me, but they seemed nice enough. And red was like pulling teeth to get them to meet with me. And they seemed Mm. super annoyed by my presence. And I would add them on LinkedIn. So it did it worse for it. And then my goal was that you should never cold apply again because not only does it harm you, people who just, I think, mass spray their applications everywhere because you appear in systems as rejected, but also it's not a targeted approach. And unless you are super competitive, you're not going to get past that initial stage, right? Like it's a recruiter or it's someone that's a non-lawyer that's often looking at your first resume Mm -hmm. or your first application. And unless you're spot on qualified for that role to get past that stage, you need somebody to vouch for you or somebody to get you into the internal referral track. And so I would use the connections from LinkedIn or I would go to my greens anytime I was interested Mm. in something and reach out to them. And then I would keep track on my spreadsheet, the no ask touches and the ask touches, because it's also important to keep in touch with your network or else it was pointless to have met once. And so a no ask touch would be something like, oh, I met Mel and she told me that Joe had referred me to you. And then I would reach out to Mel and say, by the way, met Joey today for coffee. He says you're great. Hope you're well, right? I'm still on your radar, but didn't make an ask of you. Versus if yes. I reached out and said, please refer me to da-da-da-da, that I've made an ask. Mm. And I want to like track so I don't over-ask anybody anything. And also track to make sure I'm keeping in touch with the people I want to keep in touch with. And so I came back to that same network and that same spreadsheet when I decided I needed to make another move to go to commercial. And that's the only way, frankly, that I even got an interview because I was not qualified for that job originally. And it got my foot in the door. Of course, it's not what gets you the job. You still have to show up and convince somebody to give it to you. But that was the only way. Wow. Okay. So you still have this spreadsheet? I do. I send Christmas cards to it every year. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. That's like, that has got to be the most incredible source of IP for yourself. But I also feel like you could monetize it, anonymize it and monetize it as like, here is the spreadsheet. And then you fill in the blanks and just give it to your students and your kind of early career lawyer connections. That's exceptional. I don't think I've heard of anyone that works in that way. And you have to add me to the spreadsheet. I'll send you a Christmas <laughs> card too. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I can return the favor. I've got some beautiful Australiana themed Christmas cards with little koalas. With like <laughs> little. Oh, I'm so in. <laughs> I'm going to get you one of them. The power of networking is phenomenal, especially if you, you know coming to the profession without an inherent network, like, you know, from family or generational or whatever it is, and you have to just start from scratch. And I, I think that that probably applies to any profession, but that's an exceptional gift that you have to to think in that way. And you know, I'm I'm listening to you explain the 
strategy behind, you know, basically information gathering and, and problem solving and, and linking opportunities. And I can see that that would also really set you up for being such an effective general counsel because it's almost the same pattern of mind. It's like, well, this is the strategy. This is where the business is trying to go. And how can I kind of help connect the dots with people, resources, or, you know, it's, it's going to be a mixture of things, but that's an exceptional way to think. I'm taking a lot from that. So, so thank you for sharing. Yeah. And you know, it's a lot of upfront work, building your network. And I will say to your point, I started from scratch. I had no lawyers in my family. When I started mm. networking, I reached out to my school and asked for a list of some alumni I could reach out to. And I started wow, cold yeah. and then built on it. But all of that upfront time has served me over time. It's from that network I draw my teams from when I want to hire. It's from the network mm -hmm. I reach out for referrals when we're looking for outside counsel or when we're looking for a certain firm that does something specific. I use that network to refer people to other jobs. If I know people are looking, I will recommend them for things. And since that first in-house job, it's been the way I've gotten a job ever since all the way along my career has been through my network, not through cold applying to things. Fantastic. And then you, you're just getting in warm, like you said, and so much of this business is people you know, relationships, trust, rapport. And if you've got kind of a nod from someone who's trusted, then that goes a long way. I'm, I'm absolutely sure that that, again, is a global people, human, you know, just way of, of doing business. I want to shift to present day and what you're doing now. Tell me about Glowforge. I'm so fascinated to hear more. And like, it's a big question, but what does like a typical day in your legal life look like now? Glowforge has been incredible. It's 3D laser printers. The idea that anybody can make anything. And so it really opens up just a universe of creativity as well as bringing everyday life into being a maker. You know, you can create whatever it is that comes to your mind. You think, I need something to prop my door open. Your instinct might be to go to Amazon and order a $10 door stopper from China to be at your doorstep in two days instead of thinking, gosh, I could just push a button and I can make my own. It's been a, an incredible journey. And the thing that's interesting from an intellectual standpoint is that we are a hardware company, as in we produce a physical product, but we also are a technology, a software company. The actual Glowforge itself, the user really pushes one button. Everything else, it's designed in the technology and the software. So similar to an iPhone, right? They sell iPhones, but they're businesses and the apps really. And so you get to do a little bit of hardware, a little bit of technology and software, and then a lot wow. of kind of community work, right? We have a bunch of artists and professionals who run small businesses that use our product who will go on the community forum. And if you create a design and upload it and someone else uses it, you'll get a royalty. And so there's a whole wow. art, artistic small business community that uses it. And it's really interesting because it brings an entire community together. Any industry, anything, people have a need for it, whether it's you craft a box that your good goes out on, or whether it's, you know, selling on Etsy, your personalized, you know, cutting boards, or whether it's creating dollhouses, or whether it's your business is completely unrelated to the craft itself, but you're using it to market for yourself or to send out keychains with your business on it. It's just a really interesting and versatile and creative product. But then what attracting me to the company is just their values. They mm. live and breathe their values. They believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's part of everyday conversations. They believe in taking care of people and only hiring exceptional people. And so it's an entire environment that you're all moving in the same direction, driven by the same values. What does everyday life look like or daily life? Gosh. Can you it. even? <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. I started, gosh, I don't know, I'm probably gonna get it wrong, four or five months ago at this point, six months ago, to build the legal team from scratch. And so the first thing I did was come in and, and assess where are we at? What are the most highest legal needs here? What do I need for a team to do this? 
and and then go to my network and hire the right team mm-hmm. and set strategy, expectations, training, and best practices in place. At a startup, it's a lot of building, not just answering the one-off question, but building a process for that or creating a sustainable mm. way that you're going to look at certain things or what is your risk profile, what is your approach. It's a lot of the bigger picture question while also trying to triage the individual question. And then I think a couple months into it, I ended up taking over the HR recruiting people ops team. And so I've been working on that side of things, kind of building out those processes, doing these assessments, same thing. And then recently I took over facilities. And so doing something similar in terms of needs assessment and figuring out where the best and highest use of our time and energies are going and what processes need improving and what don't. And so day-to-day is just a lot of, (laughs) it's it's a lot of meetings Mm. is what it is. And then, you know, I think when you're leading teams, it's a lot of meeting with your teams to enable it and set them up for success to go forward and do what they need to do. Setting strategies, setting expectations, helping guide big picture conversations and decisions, and then providing that mentorship and guidance. And then at a startup and a small team, you're always also rolling up your sleeves and doing the actual work yourself as well. Oh my gosh, that is a lot. Wow. <laughs> I feel like you just need to go on a holiday and have like a really nice relax. <laughs> I can't even imagine how intense the last you know six or so months have been. Where does that drive to show up daily and to be putting in what I suspect is some serious serious hours and serious work and like outcomes focused daily what internally drives you to to bring that energy daily it is a lot it's funny I'm also we, I, we have a two and a half year old and so she keeps me quite busy oh and, and I'm due to have a baby in February and so I'm, maternity That's leave may feel like that vacation I don't know I from what I hear <laughs> with, with a toddler maybe not but let's absolutely aim for that <laughs> let's, let's aim for that I know um well and it's interesting because to answer your question it's always it's who I am. I'm, I juggle a lot of balls. I'm high energy and I am driven to do the things I'm doing at the best that I can do them. Mm-hmm. I think that I do them here because everything I'm doing feels valued. On my LinkedIn, you can see I posted a post, gosh, a month into starting and I'd gone on a double dinner with my CEO and another CLO, another chief legal officer and her CEO. We went, on, we went out to dinner, the four of us. Oh, nice. And it was a lot of fun and I posted because I would say that's probably not a common thing CEOs and GCs do. And my post outlined that I think companies view legal in one of three ways. Either they view legal as a necessary evil and Mm -hmm. the dynamic there is set that kind of legal is the place dreams go to die, but that they're necessary and you basically are going back and forth with the company on legal says no and everyone else tries to say yes. Or the second bucket is that legal is operational, that they're there to do certain functions. They're there to negotiate a contract. They're there to negotiate your mergers and acquisitions. And that's that. They kind of do their thing and that's what they're supposed to do. They're probably well-respected. They're probably treated well, but they're in that box. And then the third is that legal is seen as a strategic business partner and Mm. that's what my company sees it as and the difference Mm. in how it feels to show up daily is tangible you know my CEO doesn't come to me just for pure legal advice and when he comes for advice it's not does the law say I can do this or not or what will happen to me if I do this he's coming to me as a professional who he respects their opinion and I'm in every conversation every major initiative every major program every big shift everything we're gonna do with the org I'm in those dialogues having these conversations proactively as a strategic partner so yes it's long hours and yes, it's a lot of work, but it feels valuable. It feels like what I'm putting Mm. in is respected and taken to heart. And it feels like there's tangible outcomes from it. Whereas if you're constantly Mm. battling to have what you're saying heard, it feels like, why am I doing all of that, right? And so Mm -hmm. it does make a difference. And I tend to fill my time, well, I fill my time completely, but I fill it with things that I'm passionate about. And I fill it with things that I 
enjoy. So I guess you're never working if you're doing things you love. Mm. You know, I have a side business that I founded a couple of years ago. It's a diversity, equity, inclusion business. And so, you know, I work on that. I've kind of started winding it down since this job just because of the hours. But, you know, my husband and I are also landlords. I also sit on the board for Providence Hospice for pediatric care. There's always something to do. And I do choose to fill my time. I work most often. <laughs> and I, you know, I log off at 5, 5.30 and go get my daughter and we do dinner and bath and family time. And then she goes to bed at eight and I log back on. And I usually work until, you know, midnight or one and then start over the next day. And I love what I do. And whether that's work for my company, which it most often is, or for my Mm. diversity business or for a board, they're all things at this point, it has helped me prioritize what is important to me and where do I want my time to go. And if it's going to be time that I'm taking away from sleep or family, it better be somewhere meaningful. I think that's kind of what drives me is I feel like everything I'm doing is meaningful and something that is aligned deeply with my values and what I find important. Well said. I love this for you. This is what we should all strive for, this feeling of appreciation, recognition, and and, and just what you said about, you know, being deeply aligned to your values and being recognized so that your work doesn't feel like work. It just feels like flow, I guess. It brings you joy. (laughs) That's so, so wonderful. And I know that that doesn't happen by accident. You do have to craft a career and get really comfortable with looking at who you are and understanding what drives you and what doesn't. And, And sometimes that means kind of shaking off old paradigms about what you thought you might do as, as a career as a lawyer or what you know what industries are the best industries to work in or whatever whatever these kind of old paradigms are and it sounds like you've just thoroughly thrown them all away and built something from scratch your life that goes well this is how I want to spend my time and I'm reminded of that quote you know that life is not a dress rehearsal and you know there's just one shot let's have a crack let's really enjoy what we do and let's make an impact and do it you know in our in our community and in ways that that, that bring us joy. So I, I think that's so phenomenal. My gosh. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, I feel like I used to be frustrated when people say things like that if I were in law school or a new attorney and say, well, that's not realistic. You need a job or that's not realistic. You don't get to hand pick where you're going. But to your point, it's an intentional choice and it's mm. a crafting So yes, you can't decide today necessarily as a second year associate, I wanna work for a company that does X, I wanna work for this size team, I'm gonna do this type of law, and I wanna have a work-life balance, and I wanna be paid Y. You may not be able to go get that tomorrow, but you can build your career, build your network, build your skills with that in mind and an intentional path there. And I think that that's what everyone should feel encouraged and should go do, that instead of just being unhappy with what you're doing now and thinking one day, one day, right, that's going to fall in my Mm. lap. It doesn't. It certainly didn't fall in mine. It's work over time to intentionally craft your path. Absolutely. And if nothing changes, nothing changes, right? I connect with lots of uh, junior lawyers who are in private practice, largely unhappy, to be honest, and and just a little bit disillusioned, like, oh, this is not at all what they, you know, they promised in the brochure. (laughs) And and they do look outside for other options and and in-house becomes something that perhaps they weren't taught about or wasn't something that was an option at one point. And they come into the orbit and and consume the content that I put out. And I suspect that you have the same experience. And I say like, well, if nothing changes, nothing changes and you will be 30, 40, 50, you know, mm-hmm. th- this time will pass. Let's have a look at what stories and, you know, you're telling yourself about what successful lawyering looks like or, or what a successful career in inverted commas looks like. And, and let's unpack that. And it's, it becomes a mindset coaching situation yeah. very quickly. And I, I'm not qualified. I'm sure you're more than yeah. qualified, I, but I absolutely agree. 
So I want to I want to shift a little to the resources that help you execute on a daily basis at the high level that you are and and are able to pull you out of the weeds as we would say and elevate that strategic high value work. And most specifically, I'd love to ask you about legal tech and if you use any specific piece of, of legal tech or, or pieces within your department or what's on your radar, what you're interested about. That's such an interesting question. A, I am a big believer in data and technology and legal teams needing to leverage that to make themselves efficient. I also recognize there's always a trade-off. There's budget <laughs> constraints. Yeah. There's what your company's already using. It's what's compatible with your systems and your IT, all of that. And so you make concessions as well as kind of targeted asks. Contract management is usually one on my first list of asks because those data analytics directly tie to revenue. Being able to Mm. know where your risks are, when things need to be renegotiated, Mm. who your signers are, and tracking all of those things, payment terms, Mm. making sure the right stakeholders are weighing in, that compliance is seeing this piece, that the insurance team is weighed in, whatever it is, is directly related to your revenue. And the speed in which you can do contracts is usually directly related to revenue. And so it's usually a, a first ask. And depending on the size of your company, you don't have to go all in and get the huge you know, unicorn capability, mm. you can start small and kind of have a database repository type contract management. But that's usually my first technology or software that I, I find important to go get. And then I also look around, I try to look at what other teams are already using, because that's usually easier asks, you know, various teams, whether that's your customer support team or your IT team have ticketing capabilities and looking at that to see if that could secondarily be used as some sort of incident management or matter management or project management software for your team and having people come do demos or like look through that for what you can do depending on the size of your company and what you're seeing is will dictate I think what the other things you that are important if you're a company that sees a lot of litigation then it may be important to have e-discovery or litigation hold software or something like that if you are small and very rarely ever knock on wood get a lawsuit that might be an ask that's not necessary right away um so you know, right now we, we focus on contract management and are doubling up using existing software to see what works best for us from a from a project management standpoint. And then we're utilizing existing software for different asks and processes. So if there's a regular type issue that comes up, we're looking at a way that can synthesize someone filling in a form that gets synthesized and kind of sent to legal in a certain way so that we're not just getting a ton of emails that way. We're looking at mm-hmm. various things like Asana or whatnot to help our team mm. stay organized in terms of tasks lists and sharing cross-functionally what we're doing, different things like that. But we're, it's a constantly evolving ask based on need. And usually it's an ROI, you know, at any time I make an ask, I have to make the business case for why the money is worth what we're asking. And I have to show where the rub is, where the compliance issue is, or where, where this is going to help us turn around something faster that's going to relate to the bottom line in order to make that ask. And the, the space is so big as well. Like it, you could spend days just in vendor assessment land and totally. doing all the demos. And totally. I'm sure they like to reach out and make connections and, and you want to engage and understand the technology and the different players, but it can become a full-time job. hundred percent. There is full-time jobs, but I feel like legal ops has become a Legal thing. ops. Yeah. yeah. That's a big thing in Australia at the moment. It's absolutely another kind of career path that I, I'm actually seeing a trend for uh, paralegals, career paralegals finding their way into the legal operations space and managing the legal team as a whole in terms of the staff, the external legal team, the tech, the whole thing. And smaller teams as well seem to be prioritizing that higher perhaps over another legal counsel. So that's that's an interesting kind of trend that I'm just picking up. But you know, I think the technology piece is just so crucial. And I love what you said about existing pieces of tech within the business and leveraging off that. And and for the longest time at at Mega 
Singapore, we we used Jira, which is an Atlassian product because the uh, software engineering team were using it and it's ticketing and you can have a dashboard like a kind of like Trello or Asana and you know, move things around and it's very transparent. And that really served us well from startup to, you know, five years in. And then we we went to market and we thought, well, you know, it's it's really time to get our own bespoke piece of tech for, for us. So that's absolutely a journey. But for anyone in the, the startup space and, you know, your first lawyer in, sometimes you just have to use what's there. And <laughs> yeah. maybe it's even a good old Google Doc or yeah. a, another <laughs> yeah. spreadsheet. We have a Google Doc spreadsheet for many things on our team. Yeah, fantastic. I, I want to ask more future focused on the tech. Is the contract kind of AI review on your radar? That's that's something that I'm just hearing a lot about. Is that penetrating your radar as well? Absolutely. And it's part of kind of the RFP process we did when we went to find our contract management piece. You know, like I mentioned, it being dependent on where you are in the journey. I think in the beginning and as you're being economical, you need something just basic for contract management, a repository, maybe something that does some basic tracking or reporting. But as you advance, 100%, if you're seeing hundreds of contracts a day, it makes sense from an economical standpoint that you have some sort of AI that can flag certain terms or some sort of AI that can help you categorize what you're reviewing or depending on the types of contracts. Maybe there's some that are, you know, just handling your basic NDAs or handling, I mean, the other options are you're outsourcing those or offshore teams or you're hiring very junior people or you're using, you know, a third party company. You have to weigh all the economics and, and how much you want to invest into personalized review of each of these. But I think AI is absolutely the universe in which contracts are going to start to be viewed through and everyone's going to have to figure Mm. out their comfort level with that. It's fascinating. I'm trying to understand how to evaluate these systems and they use metrics to kind of talk about the, I suppose, the completeness of the AI review. And I'm thinking, I don't know, I don't know what that means. Like I'm, you know, this is 101 kind of stuff and I don't have computer science background. So let's break it down. But it's, yeah, fascinating to see the the space evolve. And I think you most certainly would be at the cutting edge and the forefront of companies that are looking to probably meet the market with the most forward thinking tools that are available now. I think um, I suspect that that's where you want to meet because your business and the product that you're creating is revolutionary. <laughs> so, so should the legal team, right? I mean, 100%. It's very, it's and it's very really exciting. the future, right? AI and technology. And it's interesting to me how that intersects with the legal industry in general. And so things like any new trend has a technology aspect to it you have to think about. And so you know, for example, I was having a lot of conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, and conversations mm. started being around how legal, specifically usually employment law, is sometimes at odds with those initiatives moving forward because in order to move your initiatives forward in DNI, you're often tracking metrics, which when translated to employment law means you're documenting protected classes. And so the employment mm. lawyers are always like, whoa, what are you doing? But that at some point you kind of have to step back and find the middle ground of how do we do these important things and accept a reasonable amount of risk in order to move them forward. And then the same mm. thing comes up with technology. You know, there's a lot of recruiting tools for specifically DNI purposes that will flag candidates who are underrepresented. Mm. And I'm sure legal might look at that and say, well, is that something we want to do? <laughs> because mm. we may be documenting not hiring 
underrepresented people in that case and making a choice of which motivation is important. Same thing for, I was I saw a demo where there's this AI for both customer success or customer support ticketing, but also in general, internal teams, that you could have flag communications as people are sending emails and it could flag biased sentences. You could have it flagging things oh, like, wow. you know, oh, you shouldn't say that about the FCPA or whatever it is you want to have it flag and make suggestions so your team's not sending certain things out either externally or internally, which I would imagine is the same kind of concept that you're using for AI and contract review. And then the question of, do you want software flagging these things? And Mm -hmm. where is it getting documented? And do you do that versus train or both? And yeah, it's just going to be the whole future conversation around AI technology and risk Mm -hmm. in the legal field, I think. And there is no guidance. Mm -hmm. You know, this is unprecedented for a number of these issues that are facing workplaces that want to be progressive and modern and relevant, you know, quite frankly, I think in into the future, but it's working with legislation or regulation that might not quite be there yet, or the nuance is not yet developed. So you you really are working in a, a space of being guided by the bigger things, the, the morals and the ethics. That's a, a privilege I find that legal department does get to to step into in that space. Are you finding that that becomes your, your you become a compass in a sense as well? Absolutely. And I think, you know, my CEO says this, you know, like, a good lawyer should be able to tell you the law, an even better lawyer should be able to kind of give you an assessment of the pros and cons of it. And a great lawyer says, where are we going and how do I help you get there and becomes a problem solver, which is distinct from a, a yes person. It doesn't mean you say yes. It means you think of all the creative ways to get to where you're going. And I think that that's the same when it comes to being the forefront of any big change is that legal should take a step back and they shouldn't be the place of no. They shouldn't also just call out the risks. They should think about what are the pros, what are the cons, what are our business initiatives? How does this fit into those business initiatives? Is there risk here? Can we mitigate it? And or is it worth it for where we're trying to go so that everybody can make knowing decisions and still be kind of on the forefront of change? Well said. Yeah, it's wonderful to have this conversation with you. It's not a conversation I hear necessarily quite publicly around the the place that, that legal can step into strategy and big picture and actually helping set a values-driven business decision. I think that's that's just fantastic. And I kind of want to ask, um, so it's somewhat related, but not really, just in terms of thinking about places that we operate in that don't necessarily have the guidance and the blueprint for. And, and if we look to the 3D laser printing product, like I don't know anything about that. I have a beautiful pink computer stand that a colleague of mine printed for me a few weeks ago. And um, I think it was like $30 worth of material and I can just pop my laptop on it and it was a, a lovely gift. But apart from that, like I know nothing. And I just really want to nerd out for a second while we kind of get to the meat. And I want to, I just want to ask about operating in a space that like, how is the legislation framework in in this area for the hardware, for this kind of technology? Is that, does that exist? I have no idea. There's certainly safety regulations, right? There's consumer regulations and advertising regulations. There's laser safety guidelines and specifications both in the U.S. and internationally. That's kind of cool. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, there's lots of different regulations in different spaces. But also, to your point, it's a new way of bringing it all together. And so certainly navigating that space and sometimes forging your own path if there's not clear guidance is important, I think, to know your values then because that becomes then value-driven decisions. Do you kind of reach into the void and and connect with lawmakers or or people that need to know from you as well? Is that like a, a 
conversation that you have or culturally in Australia, it's something that big business would certainly do and invest, uh, you know, government relations, government, government affairs. But the startup scene, we tend to probably be a little bit reactive when there's submissions to government on particular privacy legislation, as an example. Like what's the what's the culture in do you find in, in your state and country? I would agree with you that the big businesses tend to weigh in more here. Mm. Certainly, though, I think that there is room for it and you do see some advocacy in certain industries if it's a, a major topic that's really going to affect your company and they're taking comments or there's a place in which your comments may be highly relevant. Certainly have seen startups get involved actively in that space and submit their comments or reach out to their you know, contacts to make their statement and stance known, because I do think it's important the industry people have a say in educating the people making Mm. decisions around what's actually happening and how that impacts the business. Absolutely. Before it's too late, before Facebook is called up to Congress or something, <laughs> to try to explain it. Exactly. I can say that. I can say it. Uh, that's so so fascinating. Thank you for, for just insight a little bit there on, on how, how that works. I think you really are at the forefront of so many areas. And I, I have one last question for you, and it's, it's kind of bringing it back out, big picture view, career advice. I, I want to know the best piece of career advice that you've ever received. Let's see what comes through when I ask that question. Well, I'll probably cheat and I'll answer that in in two ways. One, I would say the bigger picture advice that I would have is that you should find mentors and use your network to always have a few trusted people in it that you stay in regular contact with Mm -hmm. because that's where my best pieces of advice come from. I'd say the best piece of advice I ever received, I have a mentor. She was actually a previous boss. She knew because we were close that I had been reached out to about a role, not my current one, probably the one right before this. And I'd been talking to her about it, you know, that I wasn't looking, but that someone had reached out from my network, that I thought that this was going to be a really great career move for me. You know, we talked substantively about it. And she was very supportive. As I knew the offer was coming, I was starting to have anxiety because I knew that we were getting ready to have our first child. That old chestnut. Oh my goodness. And we, we did IVF. So I knew that we had planned to be pregnant in what would probably be the first week of me starting this new job if all things went well. And I also didn't intend to pause that process because we've been in this painful long process for over a year. And so I had all of these anxieties. Well, what does this mean for me? And I've never been pregnant. What if I'm sick? What if I don't feel well? I don't have credibility built up at this new company. What if I show up and I'm not performing the way I needed to? What if my goals change when I'm pregnant or when I have this child? What if I've given up kind of a great work-life balance and a steady, stable job here for the startup life where I have all these wild Mm. hours that I'm working and I, I regret that decision? All of these things, right? And she just said, you know, my best advice I can give you is to not worry about problems that don't exist yet. So you're not currently pregnant. I hope for your sake that it works and you will be, but you are not. Mm. You don't know that if you are, that you'll be sick. You don't know that if you are, that your goals are going to change. You don't know that if you are, that your priorities will change. What you do know right now is that this job and what it can offer is directly in line with what you want to do with your skills and where you want to be going. With the information you have in front of you and without any of those problems existing currently, you should make the best decision you can with what you have. And I have taken that to heart in so many ways because you hear so many people saying, well, now's not a good time for X and what if Y and my husband might take this job or I might be moving or, you know, Mm. I don't know, my parents' future health. And yes, important considerations. And then coming back and recentering to not inhibiting yourself or paralyzing yourself from making very important life decisions with the facts you have in front of you and not letting future problems that don't yet or may never exist dictate losing some really important opportunities. 
I just want to like round of applause. <laughs> that is so, so profound and such wonderful advice. And like you're speaking straight to my soul. I suspect there are a number of people who need to hear that going into a new year, going into a reset. It feels like we're coming out of a very long coma, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. And, and different countries are experiencing, uh, you know, different waves and impacts of the pandemic again. But if we we look at the big picture, you're so right. We just we just don't know what we don't know. We, we're trained as lawyers to, to look around corners and find the problems and, and try and fix them ahead of time. But for life, I mean, it, it just doesn't work that way. But yeah, and I suspect that you made your decisions and then you, you know, you trusted yourself, you backed yourself and you were able to work and navigate through when the facts did change and, you know, when you were pregnant and then when you had to pivot and make decisions, you know, again and again, like that's... It was one of the yeah. best decisions I made. I don't regret it. It turned out I that I was pregnant, but it also turned Mm. out I was not sick. It was still the best career choice I made for myself. And her point was not that these things may not happen, but that when they do, you pivot and then you make the best decision then with the information in front of you. And that was really the best advice because you can change your mind. You're not stuck in what you do, but you shouldn't make choices on the unknown necessarily. Well said. Let's wrap it up there. That is a beautiful place to leave this conversation. And thank you so much. And, 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 you know, all the best for the next year. You as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this show. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you're listening from. To learn more about in-house practice, follow me on LinkedIn and Instagram 